Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as we hear the angel say that Jesus uh, will save his people from their sins, uh, we pray that you will convict us of the reality and seriousness of our sin and even more, uh, that you will convict us that Jesus is the Saviour, the one who can rescue us uh, from all that our sin has brought upon us, death and judgment and hell. In your mercy, help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it as the word of our living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good. And you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, The story that unfolds in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this book that we're going to be looking at over the next few months, is there in verse 21, in the reason given for naming Mary's unborn baby Jesus. Here you have the purpose of his coming, life and ministry. He will save his people from their sins. And that, sadly, is a little unfortunate, at least for selling the story. You see, while believers might think this, his, uh, Jesus' successful completion of that mission is the cause of his continuing greatness and importance and of our hope and joy, for many in our world, this talk of saving from sin brands Jesus as irrelevant and his story as, at best, a curiosity. You know, saving from sin doesn't just, just doesn't bring that kind of thrill of excitement. Sin, you see, is part of the religious language of the past that, like an unloved pot plant, has been left, neglected, to wilt and wither in a dark corner, forgotten and unlamented. It's not that as a society we don't think we have problems, personally and collectively. It's just that sin, if it rates at all, is low down on the list. I mean, if it was said that Jesus could save his people from cancer or COVID, that would get our attention. Or if he was going to save us from poverty or ignorance or rescue people from the effects of broken families or just make people and nations get on, that would excite our interest. Or if the angel had said, you will call his name Felix because he will make his people happy. Well, we're all into happiness, aren't we? But sin... Sin, you see, inevitably has the stamp of God on it. It's missing the mark of God's standards for living, not honouring or acknowledging the true God, disbelieving God's word, disobeying his commands. And so for many of us, sin's not something at the forefront of our minds. In our public life, our conversation as a society, you see, we have a sin problem, and that's thinking that sin is not a problem. And so a story about being rescued, being saved from sin, from something that we don't see as a danger for many, just doesn't grab their attention. Which is strange when we, because, you know, when we are sinned against, that does get our attention. I mean, when we're wronged, when people miss the mark, the standard of how we expect to be treated, we feel it. 
when we're robbed or defrauded, as well as, you know, the financial loss, there's that sense of personal affront, isn't there? A resentment at being treated as if you just don't matter. Oh, when we're the object of someone's unjust anger or the victim of their careless driving or slander or deceit, we feel it's not right. And we want it dealt with. We want it punished and the wrong put right. We want, say, the money back, the truth to be told. We want the behaviour to stop. We want the apology, the wrong acknowledged. We think sin against us is a big issue and that the government or the law or right-thinking people or sometimes even God should put an end to it. Now, why is it that we can be so disturbed, even outraged, when we are wronged, sinned against, when people fail to treat us as we expect, as we think we deserve, and yet don't see, don't feel sin generally, sin as disobeying God, wronging God as a problem. Don't see it as something that could imperil and impoverish our lives, for unlike us, an outraged God has the power to enforce his standards, to punish our failings short of them, and to put a stop to our contemptuous treatment of himself. So why is there this difference? Well, it's because we as a society, we're a society where God is not big in our thinking, but people are. That's right, isn't it? There's constant secular propaganda that casts doubt on God's existence. (laughs) He's not really there. That expresses doubt about his necessity. Oh, the world gets on okay without him. He's not needed or really involved. That sows doubt and confusion about his character as it makes all views of God equal and denies truth to any of them. And so the settled conviction of our society is that we don't need to consider God when thinking about what will make us prosper. In fact, we believe a right-thinking society excludes God and what pleases or displeases him from consideration. And as public life dominates our news, common life and conversation shapes our shared convictions, God grows small in our consciousness. Awareness and conviction of his importance is eroded. God has been shrunk in our imaginations and sin has become a non-issue. And at the same time, people have grown to fill his place. You see, if God's will doesn't need to be considered in governing public life, whose will does? Well, ours, people's. If God doesn't discern our prospering, who does? Just like, no, no, we do. We run things, we make the rules, we make the decisions and we enforce them. Our authority matters. Life is all up to us and all about us, people, humans. We're rulers of the world. And so, while it doesn't matter what people think about God and how he is treated, except to the extent that it affects others, it matters a lot how we are treated. So because people are big and God is small, Being safe from sin, from the consequences of our wronging God, is not at the forefront of our thinking or concern. And and thinking of people as big and God as small also means we, we as a society have actually a real vested interest in thinking of people as basically good, safe to be trusted with running the world, and we're preoccupied with our small present 
and put eternity out of our minds, both things making a message about being safe from sin even easier to disregard. A story where the central purpose of the central character is to save people from sin is up against it in our society. For many, sin, that desire in our hearts to be our own God, to rule our own lives, our own way, to decide what will be right for us, for many, sin has deceived us into thinking that sin, our rejection of the rule of the true God, the creator, is not a problem. And I'm drawing your attention to our society's sin problem this morning, that we don't think we have a sin problem, so that if you're not yet a believer, you'll start to understand why a story that's been important to so many generations of people at first doesn't just grab you, that you can kind of just shrug it off. And I'm drawing it to your attention because if you're a believer, I want you to be aware that In this society, believers too can start to think that sin is not the big problem. Oh, as believers, we're the people who give lip service to sin. We use the language, but it's easy for us to lose the excitement of being saved from sin, for our hearts to cease to thrill at the name of Jesus, the name that speaks of his purpose in coming to save us from our sins. And when that happens, we can start to make secondary things primary and so distort and diminish Jesus. For example, we'll say the real problem is ignorance. So Jesus must serve education, a teacher, not a saviour. Or we'll say the real problem is sickness, so Jesus has to serve our getting and staying healthy. Or the real problem is economic injustice, so Jesus must serve our redistributive goals. The real problem is social isolation, so Jesus has to serve our connection, our development of loving community. The Saviour and Lord then becomes the servant of our goals, making a better life or society for ourselves. And he's only to be valued to the extent that he serves those goals. When we stop thinking Jesus saving us from our sin is the big deal, where we stop feeling every day the wonder of that, we lose the gospel focus. Start making the fruit of believing the gospel more important than the gospel itself. So we preach reformation of morals or an improved family life, not salvation from sin. And we lose gospel urgency. For while there's no other saviour from sin, people can find other ways, for example, of improving their family life. Where Jesus came to save his people from their sins, sin has deceived us into thinking that sin is not the problem and that is a tragedy. For sin is the problem, something we need saving from, and only Jesus can do that. You see, sin is real for God is real. And we were made to know and love God, who is the source and sustainer of our lives. And since a problem all humanity has had from the time of Adam, and Adam's story actually illustrates the nature of our sin and its consequences. Uh, Do you remember that story in Genesis 2? God gave Adam a command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he warned him that on the day he ate of it, he would surely die. And then along came the tempter. Remember what 
He said to Eve with Adam listening on, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam and Eve acted on the lie of the tempter. They ate and they brought death upon all their descendants, for God keeps his word. And what was the character of that first sin? Well, Adam chose to think that God doesn't tell the truth, that his word would not be fulfilled. Oh, that God was holding back something good from him by wanting him, Adam, to live by faith in and obedience to his word. Adam chose to believe that he, a creature of dust given life by God, could be like God, could exercise the privilege of God to decide right and wrong in creation, that he could live independent of God. And that's the character of all our sin, choosing not to believe God's word to believe that we can decide for ourselves what's right and wrong without God and that life is found in doing what seems right to us and disobeying God. But as Adam's sin showed, to think that, to believe that, is a disaster. You see, there is no life for creatures independent of God. Our life is sustained by the word we reject and we are always now trying to be what we cannot be because we don't have the wisdom and power to be God, to know the right and achieve the right. I'm made to love God and live by heeding his word. We now resent God, see his rule as a threat to ours, his life that sustains our life as a threat to our life. And we have compounded our misery by misdirecting our love away from God to love created things in his place. And we crush those created things with the weight of our expectation. We idolise them, whether it's a human love or a career or our family or wealth or sporting fame, to be disappointed and betrayed by them. Because we look to them for meaning, purpose, love. The meaning, purpose, love we were made to only find in loving God who made us. We look to them. And they can't deliver and we are left empty, thirsty. We all sin against God by disbelieving, disobeying and loving created things in his place. And our sin has far-reaching consequences. Sin's not just an isolated religious idea, it's our lived experience. It's not just something that might give us problems at some final judgment. No, it's at work to create misery now. You see, our determination to be God, to be the ruler and judge of our own lives, our determination to put created things in the place of the creator God works through every aspect of our lives. It's seen in, say, the violence, physical or verbal, that's used to establish our rule over others, violence in our families, in our workplaces, in our societies. Oh, and it's seen in our hearts, in the hatred and anger at those who won't conform to our expectations or it's seen in the confusion in relationships and the failure of relationships as our lives are disordered by idolizing created things it is sin our love of self and created things in place of god that lies behind those other issues those broken families economic injustice social alienation behind the ignorance and the addictions And it is sin that leaves us condemned like Adam to death. 
the sentence of God stands, you will surely die. And we die. And so our lives now are characterised by their fleetingness and loss and grief. And we die eternally. Created, we can't uncreate ourselves, will ourselves into non-existence. Existence continues, restless, dissatisfied, empty, weeping and gnashing of teeth, said our Lord, a darkness that envelopes. For God upholds the judgments of his word. Sin is our problem, our deadly problem, at the root of the grief and pain, the frustration and emptiness, the grief and death that dogs our race, each of our lives. And so to be saved from sin is wonderful, if it could be. But I've been going on, why should you agree to a truth so alien to our culture? Now, I know this is not a question for all. Uh, Some of you need no convincing about sin. You know sin's reality and you feel and have felt its seriousness. Perhaps you found that where you were seeking to do good, but you actually did harm. That where you were claiming to love, you're in reality damaging the one you loved. And you've been forced to admit to yourself that that's because you had done wrong and you've Stop trying to excuse or justify it. And when you reflected on it, you saw at its heart, in your heart, your pride, your determination to do what you thought right in defiance of or in disobedience to what you knew God or even what your parents or tradition had said was right. You need no convincing of the seriousness of sin. Oh, and and some of you, on the other hand, are completely sure sin isn't a problem, or at least not a problem for you. You live up to your standards. You always try to do what's right by others, and that, you say, is the most important thing. You're not perfect, but you're convinced that you are basically good, and so you actually think talking about sin is the problem. It's so negative, guilt-producing, so distracting from real issues. In fact, for you, talk of sin embodies everything wrong with religion. And then there are some of you who are considering You know, perhaps you're attracted to Jesus and the gospel story, but puzzled by this focus on sin in our society. It's hard to to understand it, isn't it? I mean, you know you do wrong, but who doesn't? You might even know you don't give God much thought. And so you're wondering, is sin that serious? Well, let me give you four reasons, very briefly, to believe that sin is that serious. Firstly, there's the gospel itself. It's a stubborn witness, a real witness, both to the reality of human rebellion and to God's reality. You see, the gospel shows us, if you read it, good people hating God. The climax of Adam's sin in their killing Jesus, and that's right, but when you decide that you are God's equal, well, the true God just gets in the way of you being God. Oh, but the gospel also shows this, the resurrection, God's reality and power. Witness, he's not uninvolved in the world, he's there. A resurrection that confirms the truthfulness of Jesus who came to deal with sin. That's right, the Jesus of the gospel thought sin is a problem so serious that he would have to die to deal with it. So the gospel witnesses to the seriousness of sin. And secondly, there's the witness of human nature. Have you thought, why are we the way we are, capable of such good, possessed of such powers, and yet so capable of misusing them to harm others and our environment? 
Have, have you thought about why utopias, attempts to create an ideal society, always fail? And that those attempts always are accompanied by grief and injustice? Have you thought about why we need so many laws? You see, when we look at the way people behave here, the Bible's description of human nature as created and fallen makes sense. It's not our environment, but our hearts, our wills that are the problem. We carry the seeds of our own misery in ourselves. Oh, thirdly, there's God's judgments in the world that remind us that sin is serious, whether that's his giving us up to the folly of our idolatry and rebellious choices or his actions in drought and famine, fire and pestilence to limit the effects of our proud folly, to remind us that we are creatures. And finally, there's the witness of our own consciences, that voice in each of our hearts and minds, that voice that speaks of eternity, that sense that there's actually something fundamentally wrong, that sense that there's a, a standard and you're accountable to someone or something outside yourself, which is near universal unless you work hard to silence it. Oh, that sense that there is something more, that the fleeting joy you have that leaves you longing for more points to an eternal joy, that the love you experience make you long for a lasting love. You hear that voice in your own heart. And you cannot convince yourself that the materialists are right and that this is all there is and that that longing you have is an illusion. The Bible's description of our creation made to live loving the living eternal God and of our sin and its effects which has left us now dying as we love created things in place of God makes sense of our experience, of our lived reality. We have a sin problem. Serious, pervasive, deadly. <laughs> a problem we cannot solve ourselves because it involves the God we've wronged. So we can't undo what we've done. We can't overdo, overturn God's word and it would be outrageous if we could. For that word is the source of all life and sustains the order of the universe on which our lives defend. We can't make up for what we've done. There's nothing we can offer God to recompense for the wrong we've done. For we already owe God all our obedience and he needs nothing from us. And we can't persuade God to believe our lie about ourselves, to acknowledge our rule, our power to decide the truth for ourselves. For ourselves. You see, we cannot save ourselves from our sin. And so every member of our race will die for her or his sin, and then receive what sadly many say they want, to be separated from God, to have nothing to do with God, and yet then to realise that God was the source of all the good they found in life, that it was all from him, his gift, and they're left in the darkness of their own lives forever, a tormenting darkness they know hell. But the gospel story, starts by saying that what no one member of our race can do, Jesus will do, and that he is uniquely equipped for this task. It says this in the record of his unique birth. You see, the gospel's very open, isn't it, about Jesus' irregular birth, that Mary was pregnant before she was married to Joseph, and open that this is a problem for Joseph. But as he's grappling with what to do, he is assured that while the birth is irregular, it is not immoral. 
As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus' birth to Mary, the betrothed of Joseph, who is a son of David, will make Jesus legally the son of David, but it will do more. It will make him the one, verse 23, in whom the prophecy of Isaiah 7 is fulfilled. That prophecy given to a faithless King Ahaz more than 700 years before of a child who would be both a sign of God's sure salvation and judgment was not fulfilled in Isaiah's time. In fact, Isaiah points to its fulfilment in the one he goes on to speak of in chapter 9, the son who would reign on David's throne, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Those prophecies of Isaiah 7 and 9, fulfilled in Jesus' birth, speak of Jesus' reality. God with us, a reality that equips him to be saviour. By his birth, Jesus is a true human, truly a man from conception, but a unique man, for he is truly God's son, his life from God alone, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's the eternal word, become flesh, truly God and truly man. Now, because when we come to the virgin birth in this passage, we probably have all sorts of questions, questions about process or being or about genetics, and you will observe the gospel gives no answer to any of those. And Joseph asked for none. He knew, like Mary, that God's spirit is the source of all life. And that is the Lord says to Mary, nothing is impossible for Israel's God. Creation is no limit on the creator God doing whatever he wills. In fact, it's made, we are told, by and for the word, the eternal son. So it's not given to constrain his power, but to express his glory. The gospel, you see, does something better than seek to explain process to us, seek to explain to us what we as finite beings are incapable of understanding because we cannot grasp the reality of God's infinite spiritual being, let alone what's involved in its union with our humanity. So instead of process, the gospel gives us a demonstration of the truth that Jesus is God with us, a demonstration of the power, purpose and character of the living God in Jesus, in his works and words, his death and rising, his giving of the spirit, his saving. For being unique, he can do what no one else can do, but which must be done if we're to be saved. You see, a true human, Jesus can die the death of God's judgment that his judgment on sin demands. But Jesus will die not for his own sin, not a death he deserves, for he has no sin. Jesus, we get told, can die the death, that death for others, the death of every person. He can, as Hebrews 2 says, taste, experience death for everyone. By taking on flesh and blood, he can, Hebrews 2.14, destroy the devil who had the power of death and set us free. Oh, Jesus, in his death, can offer a sacrifice of infinite worth 
an infinite worth that comes from the infinite worth of his person as the sinless son of God. Jesus knew he had come to taste death for everyone. He said that he'd come to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, he knew he was dying to give us freedom from death and judgment, the death and judgment our sin deserves. On the night before he died, he spoke of his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, born of a virgin, can alone die for our sin in our place. Every other person dies for their own sin. More. Jesus alone can bring us to love God truly, to reverse sin. As we are caught up in his relation to the Father when we repent and believe the gospel, as we are given the spirit of the Son as the spirit of of our new life, a new life no longer ensnared, enslaved to the lies of rebellion against God, but freed to love and serve our living creator as our big brother. Jesus the Son did. Jesus and he alone can do what he is sent to do and we need done. Save his people, those who believe the gospel from their sin. His birth is great good news. But we see even at the beginning of the gospel that to believe this good news will cost us in a world that loves sin. We see that in Joseph. Uh, these first verses in Matthew are, as you heard, all about Joseph, his experience of and acceptance of Jesus. When he hears Mary's pregnant, he assumes what we all would assume, that there's another bloke. And that, of course, was serious. There's no acceptance of illegitimacy in that society. In Joseph's world, world, the betrothal, the engagement, was as legally binding as marriage, and it was public. The engagement could only be terminated by divorce or death. And in rabbinic law, the law prevailing, you had to divorce adulterers. Now, Joseph knew that a public divorce and an illegitimate child would have been great shame for Mary and her family and would have prevented any chance of a subsequent marriage. Oh, he also knew that public divorce would have been financially beneficial to him for he would have been able to retain the dowry and have the bride price returned, make a profit. But as a righteous man, we heard he, he decided he would not inflict the maximum pain and shame he could on Mary, not get legal revenge. He was going to divorce her secretly until the angel appeared. And the angel's revelation, that means that he resolves to keep Mary as his wife and to accept her child as his own, his own legal heir. Now, that's great for Mary and Jesus. It means that they'd have a home. But for Joseph, it meant the sacrifice of his reputation in his community. For pregnancy is, at least towards the end, very public. Right? Joseph now would have to suffer the embarrassment of being thought to be someone who at best had abused the privileges as the betrothed and lacked self-control. Or at worst, was someone who was too weak to honour custom and right in the face of his intended unfaithfulness. Now that's a demanding obedience of a righteous person in a small community, a community with long memories. And after that, there were other costs for Joseph. 
The cost of being newly married and exercising self-control until after Jesus' birth so that a virgin birth would leave no no doubt about the origin of Jesus' life. Oh, the cost of frequent movement is well here to Egypt and then to Judea and then back to Nazareth as he shared in the world's hostility to his son. But this child, God said, was God acting to save his people from their sins. This child would be the child who would be his saviour. To know the salvation of the living God, Joseph believed, was worth paying a cost for. And so he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife and knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. There's a cost. And there's a cost to us of being committed, of believing that Jesus saves us from our sins. First, it's the cost to our pride of accepting the verdict on ourselves that we are sinners, that we deserve death for what we've done, that we are helpless to save ourselves. It's the cost of being humbled and learning to depend on the living God every day for mercy and grace. And then there's the cost of being out of step with the society around us, of testifying against their self-deception that we are big and God is small just by our very existence, by our commitment to honour the living God by believing and obeying his son Jesus, testifying that no, God is big and he should be honoured at all cost. And that's a cost of them being thought sometimes today to be anti-human because of that commitment. And then there's the cost of being aware of a great danger all around us that so many seek to ignore. The danger, the the cost of not being able to walk by unconcerned as people are perishing. The cost, and I hope if you're a believer, you know it, of the grief of seeing those you love in danger of eternal death. The cost of persevering in prayer the cost of the effort of loving and speaking and intentionally seeking. But sin is real and it is our problem, our chief problem, the source of our misery, grief and death. And Jesus really is God with us. He alone can say there is no one else like him. God and man, the eternal word become flesh, the son who for us humans and for our salvation came down from heaven to save. And he really does save. All who repent and believe the gospel, saved by the death only he can die. And if you know that of Jesus, you know that cost is worth paying. So if you're a believer in a world that does not think sin is an issue, Keep honouring Jesus and speaking of Jesus as nothing less than he is. God with us, the saviour of sinners. Come to rescue us, not to improve our life, but to give us new lives, eternal life. Don't lose focus. Don't stop thinking sin, your sin, your neighbour's sin is serious, real, deadly. And if you're not yet a believer and you don't know that Jesus saves from sin, in fact, talk of sin might still be a puzzle to you, well, read on. See Jesus demonstrate the reality of his being, the successful accomplish of his mission 
in the gospel the eyewitness accounts of those who knew him. And when you actually see that, that in his death and rising, he saves you too will know he is worth everything, reputation, comfort, wealth, life, worth everything to trust and follow for he will save you from sin and death and hell. The sin and death and hell you deserve save you by his kindness and love. In fact, don't wait for us to go through Matthew. Read on for yourself or read on with us. We'd love you to get in touch with us. We'd be so pleased to read the story of Jesus with you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, those of us who know the reality of our sin, who've seen the harm we have done by disobeying you, who have felt the horror of our distance from you and the truth of your judgment on us, uh, we rejoice. We rejoice to hear the gospel story, to hear the angels say that Jesus is God with us and that he will save us from our sin. And gracious Father, we pray in your mercy uh, that those who do not yet know the seriousness of their rebellion against you, we pray in your mercy, you would open their eyes to their situation and their peril and at the same time you would open their eyes to the glory and greatness of your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.